Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, Philip Stafford, editor of the FT's Trading Room, and Chris Wheeler from Atlantic Securities. This week, we'll be discussing the latest European bank results and why they shape up so badly against the Americans. Also, a look at the EU's plans to move euro clearing to continental Europe. And finally, look at UK credit cards and the dangers they may be posing. First, though, to that big picture topic of how European banks are performing. And Chris, you've been looking at what the first quarter numbers have told us, particularly in connection with how the US banks performed. And the Europeans don't look so great. No, I think this is a trend that's been developing really since the crisis, whereby the US banks really got their act together dealing with capital and leverage and all the other things that have been big issues for the banking sector since that time. And as a result, the big US investment banks have been slowly but surely taking market share from the likes of Barclays, UBS, Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank. And I think the first quarter of 2017 just reinforced that with those big five banks taking about 75% of the revenues in capital markets out of the group of nine large investment banks globally. And as you say, it's a trend that's steadily emerged since the financial crisis. Is it getting worse? Actually, I think it might have stabilised in the first quarter of this year. I mean, one of the issues was that the Europeans had a truly awful fourth quarter of last year. So you look at their numbers, they look quite good on a quarter by quarter basis. And also we're seeing some, you know, some signs that the European economy activity in Europe may be picking up. So that may be a, some sort of green shoot for the European banks. But basically, they've lost the share. Winning it back is going to be very, very difficult. Let me bring Laura in here because we've been talking about this topic for quite a long time. But what do you think lies behind it right now? As Chris alluded to, capital is still a question mark over some European banks. Credit Suisse announced a rights issue. Deutsche has just done one. Is that lack of balance sheet capacity, is that a problem or is there something more endemic going on? I think there's a couple of different things going on. I mean, certainly the European banks do remain challenged from a balance sheet perspective. And if you have a world where clients are looking for banks to lend more to them, then the European banks are going to struggle in certain of those types of categories. There are some issues around the strategies of some of the banks haven't been entirely clear about what parts of the businesses they actually want to stay in and what parts of the business that they want to exit. There have been concerns about their own financial health and that has led to some issues around Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank in particular in recent years. But the one thing to bear in mind is that while the European bank results are a lot worse than the US bank results and while they do continue to lose share, the European bank results are certainly better now than they were in the same quarter a year ago when they had a really bad time. Now they've actually had quite a good time if you look at the detail of some of them. I mean, in the case of UBS, they grew investment bank profits by more than 50% year on year. Even Credit Suisse, which is still a pretty challenged investment bank, they had some good results in some parts of their business where they were certainly flattered by the conditions in the market. But overall, I mean, they grew the revenue in the credit products by 139%, just something really, really high. So... There are some reasons to be hopeful and they're certainly, while they're not doing as well as the US banks, they're doing better than the European banks have done in the recent past. 
And Chris, if you had to look at that range of banks across Europe, what would you select as the kind of ones to avoid and the ones to maybe focus on and, and be more optimistic about? Well, that's, that's really difficult. I mean, I think UBS, to be fair, finally bit the bullet on fixed income in 2012. And I think they're leaping the benefit of that now by just accepting the reality of how weak they were in that area and stepping right the way back. They're very strong in equities and advisory. For Deutsche Bank, I think John Klein is doing a manful job in really trying to solidify the business. It has by far the best fixed income business of any European player but it certainly has lost customers. And while it will get a lot of those back because you have to trade with Deutsche to some degree, they still have some of the legacy issues to worry about. Barclays, well, Barclays has got lots of other things to think about with their around the CEO. But again, I think the problem with Barclays is I'm not quite sure what the strategy is. This transatlantic ideal, it feels more like creating a strategy around what you've got rather than having a strategy you know, based on what you'd like to have. And then finally on Credit Suisse, I'm bemused as to what the strategy is there. I know that they're very focused on Asia, very focused on Switzerland, very sensible. But there's a whole slew of businesses outside those regions where I don't quite see the strategic coherence, if you want, as to how they're going to fit in with the rest of the business. And clearly some of the unrest we saw last week at the AGM really reflects that. Let's move on to our second topic for the day, a look at Euro clearing. And Brussels has sent a shot across the bows of British negotiators claiming, even before we really sit down for negotiations, that Euro clearing is going to have to move to somewhere in the EU. Philip, how do you read this? Is this just brinkmanship negotiation tactics or are we really going to see a dismantling of what is essentially a London-based business, this Euro clearing business? The fascinating thing is that both options are actually on the table here. On the one side, still it's early days. The negotiating paper hasn't yet come out. It could simply be used as a way to actually get a better agreement on oversight in London. Equally, this is an issue that really has irked Brussels and many people in the continent for the best part of 20 years. And this might actually be the first time to open the door to really do it. Let's spell out what's at stake here, because I mentioned that London is the trading capital for euro-denominated transactions. What does that mean in terms of market share and what could happen to it? The numbers bounce around all over the place, partly because not all swaps are cleared, but London accounts for the majority of the euro-denominated clearing and uh, swaps trading for that matter. Now, these numbers are notional. Frankly, sometimes they don't mean an awful lot. But the last numbers on LCH's website, as of Friday, you know, they do around 850 billion euros a day in euro-denominated clearing. As I say, it's a notional number. The actual number at risk is somewhat lower. But we're talking about huge numbers. Now, when it comes to the banks, what would this mean if you end up splitting up this market? Well, on the one side, you have uh, simply in terms of people, you would have to move people across to the European Union somewhere. You'd probably have a chief risk officer, but he wouldn't go alone. There will be a team around them going. So all of a sudden, from one person, you would end up with seven or eight people. Maybe some of the traders would go. So you, you would end up seeing some leaching of business there. Then perhaps it would be anything from 10 to 25 percent. I suspect that you know, London will always remain because it is such a home for this kind of business and people like UK expertise. Okay, so here you're talking about euro-denominated clearing. The bigger question that people have, I suppose, is can you move euro-denominated transactions and leave all other currency-based transactions here in London? You're breaking up this pool of business that's in London. Yes, you can do it because you just write the rules to do so. What banks and many other people are concerned about is why you would actually want to do that. And if it were to happen, then what you do is effectively break up this huge pool of capital that all is in one place. 
banks when it comes to clearing benefits from an economy of scale the more you can actually put in one place then you can start to offset some of the trades a little bit like you do with your mortgage and your current account and uh, they also have something called trade compression brings the actual size of the derivatives portfolio down the reason that matters quite simply is because then you have to apply capital charges Post-financial crisis clearing has become interlinked with clearing up all of the financial markets and there are charges that go to the banks related to clearing. And so the more you can put into one place, the more you can begin to treat it as one and the better it goes. You split that up and all of a sudden your costs rise now. Who knows how much exactly it could cost, depends how much goes somewhere else. Now, there have been numbers banded around that it could cost European banks up to $77 billion more. That is a number that's, well, some central banks have not quibbled with. And when banks are still rebuilding their balance sheets, and we've just heard about how their results are getting slightly better, but this is something they could really do without. OK, Phil, we'll watch that negotiation with great interest. Thank you. And on to our final topic for the day. Emma, you broke a very interesting story on Monday about the UK credit card industry and some of the maybe slightly surprising and aggressive tactics that are being used to recognise revenue in this business, particularly around the zero interest cards industry. Tell us all about it. So the market for credit cards in the UK is really heating up. A lot of banks are pushing into this space, especially in the 0% balance transfer market. Now, the issue relates to the counting methodology that the banks offering this card use. And just to say at this point that um, all banks must use this accounting methodology to comply with global accounting standards, but it's the way in which they apply it. Essentially, banks can book up front some of the revenue that they expect to gain from customers that are on these 0% or interest-free cards. Once the introductory period offer ends and they then jump up to an 18% or 19% APR. So essentially what they're doing is recognising revenue now against zero or limited cash flows. A few bankers have sounded alarm bells over this and have likened it to certain accounting problems such as the one Tesco experienced a few years ago insofar as they were fined for overstating their profits because obviously by doing this it means that banks have a seemingly inflated P&L for booking revenue early when they're not actually receiving much cash against it. And there's no guarantee, obviously, that anyone will stay with a 0% interest rate card after that zero rate has ended. They're just kind of guessing that people are going to be lazy and stick with it. That's right. One of the key issues is the fact that their model is predicated on so many assumptions. So first off, that the customer that's on this 0% balance transfer offer will actually stay to the end of the period, remain on it and end up paying this APR. A number of customers do indeed jump ship before they end up paying this extreme hike in APR. The other presumption is how long these customers will then stay on this high APR once they've moved on to it. And obviously, who knows after 43 months or however long the interest-free period lasts for what the situation is at that point in time. For example, will interest rates have moved up? Will unemployment in the economy have gone up? Um, Will there be more competition in the market in terms of banks offering more competitive credit card rates, which will entice more borrowers away? So those are a couple of key unknowns that people are concerned about, the fact that banks are basing revenue on this. But just to add, more recently, regulators have started to apply greater scrutiny to this market. And this is another key risk to the sector. And who in particular is doing this in the market? So there are a couple of key players in the market. You have Barclaycard, 
as one of the largest credit card issuers in the UK. You have Lloyds Banking Group, who struck a deal at the end of last year to acquire UK credit card company MBNA from Bank of America. And you also have Virgin Money. Now, some of the analysts highlight Virgin Money as being relatively exposed because of the rate of growth that it's experienced as a challenger bank and the fact that its credit card book accounts for about 10% or slightly less, I should say, of its overall loan portfolio, which has therefore left a few analysts sort of focused on it. Very good. Well, one to watch, definitely. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura, Philip and Emma and also our guest, Chris Wheeler from Atlantic Securities. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.